That was really good. Wasn't that beautiful? I mean, yeah, that was pretty good. I mean, yeah, I can see why they didn't ask me to do a duet. I really can. I don't like getting political. I don't. So I won't. Good idea, huh? But when you have 4,000 babies being murdered every year, every day in the United States, you have to ask yourself, what's going on? When you have candidates saying that they're going to make a baby that has been born, make it comfortable, and then discuss whether they're going to kill it or not. That's got to that's, that's bother you. When you have 1.5 million people being murdered every year, that has got to bother you. Or are we just uh, desensitized so much that it doesn't get to us? I'm shoveling snow one day. It was uh, Michigan. And it was on a Sunday. We had to cancel chapel. We had a heavy snow. And so I'm shoveling out the driveway. And I look down the street, and there is an ambulance. And then three, one sheriff, deputy sheriff, and two Richmond police officer, squad cars, three squads, squad cars there. So I put my shovel in the uh, snowbank, and I walked down the snow-covered road, heavily snow-covered road. And for those who are thinking about coming to Tepsi, bring a good coat. So I'm walking down the road and towards where the officers, the lights were going, and I go to the house, and I kind of gingerly walk in, and I look, at, I look at the situation, and there's the officers, and there is this man pacing, and there is a woman. And I'm surmising. I, we're new to the area, so I'm surmising that they're husband and wife. And they were um, just weeping, crying their eyes out. And they were... They came home from an anniversary weekend celebrating their anniversary. And they came home to find their 26-year-old son dead on his bed with fentanyl all over him. That's just right down my street. It's like three houses down. The opioid crisis. Does that... Does that bother you? Um, the situations that we are looking at when we watch either Fox or CNN or whatever, 
news gathering organization, when we look at the situations that are before us and constantly before us, they can desensitize us, can't they? They can make us cold. Doesn't affect me. Doesn't affect me at all. That's what we would say. Is there something wrong with us? And we know that there's something wrong with the world, but is there something wrong with us? That we wouldn't give it but a passing attention. We just, oh, that's terrible. That's a horrific thing. And we just walk on. I want to ask you a question. You know, you have some, they don't, we don't see these little bracelets much anymore, WWJD. We don't see those too many anymore. It was a passing Christian fad and Christian bookstores and all that, WWJD. What would Jesus do? This kind of thing. But what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And he sees all this. I was asked, uh, you'll appreciate this, uh, Ryan, that I was asked uh, by a retired fireman to possibly be a chaplain at our volunteer fire department. He says, yeah, you got to go into, uh, sometimes you'll get a call. They have a number of chaplains, but uh, you'll get a call. And, uh, you know, the... the a person will be burnt up and the grieving family will be there and, you know, you'll have to talk to them. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we'll have to talk to them. We'll have to talk to them. I want a hard heart. Let me say that again because it kind of gets slurred. I want a hot heart. I want to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I want that. But with a hot heart comes a cost. I want to see the world, I really do, the way the Lord Jesus sees it. And I never want to get over it. I want to see people the way he sees them. Not the way I see them, but the way he sees them. And how does he see this world? I'd like to look at a passage of Scripture. I'd like you to join me in looking at this passage of Scripture. And it's Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. The two blind men are healed, and the demoniac, a person with a demon, is healed. And in verse 36, and in verse 35, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. 
and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. This passage, Jesus gives us three aspects in our, for our lives that we must have in our lives. Three aspects uh, that we want in our lives. Three aspects of love, of missions. We, this is exactly what he wants. And he, we see this. Uh, we see his, his, in verse 36, we see his motivation. His motivation. We see it. In verse 37, we see the matter of missions. We see the matter of missions. And in verse 38, we see the mandate for missions. We see the mandate for this. We talk about missions, you know. I had to wrestle with this. I was graduated from the Moody Insta Bible Toot. And uh, um, I had to wrestle with this because they had a foreign missions division and they also had a uh, home missions major, both of them majors. Um, I was in the evangelism major, and uh, I mean, you'd say, well, what's wrong, what's wrong with that kind of thing? I think I like what Wesley said, John Wesley. He said, the world is my parish. So whether it's, whether it's in Erie and Jaya, whether it's in Zambia, whether it's uh, Africa, the continent of Africa, whether it's Asia, whether wherever, anybody that's breathing is our mission field. So that means right out here. That means right next door where you live. If you're in an apartment, that means you're, you know, in the building. I mean, that, anybody that's breathing missions, that's what it is. We often have this idea that you know, to really be a true missionary, you have to go across the pond. And I understand that in terms of missiology, uh, you know, cross-cultural communication and learning a new language and inculcating yourself in their culture and all that kind of stuff. But forget it. I just think you ought to forget that paradigm. Does that sound really intelligent? I have no idea what paradigm means. Except it sounds good and sounds like I'm really intelligent about this kind of stuff. But when you look at this, we look at, when we look at these aspects of missions, um, we see Jesus' motivation for it. And notice his motivation. Look at this. We see here the condition of the multitude. We're going to look at verse 36b. That would be the last half of the verse. And it says, because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. That's the way the Lord Jesus looks at it. We don't look at it that way oftentimes. We look at people as a nuisance. 
We do. We look at them as, oh, those really bad news people and all that kind of... What do we... I want to ask you, from the drug addict to the politician to anybody without Jesus Christ, what do we expect? What do we expect? We want to pass laws that are going to bring in salvation to people in terms of the behavior? It's not going to, yes, we have laws and you break the laws and you, you know, and there is human government, no questions about that. But that's not going to make a person righteous before God. It is never going to make a person righteous before God. Never. The law never does that. Whether it's a human law or God's, the law never makes anybody righteous. It just tells them how far they fall short. So whether, you know, from a political standpoint, we say, well, that person's liberal, that person's conservative, etc. It doesn't matter. If they do not have Jesus as their personal Savior, they are lost. They're weak. They're aimless. They have, no, they have nothing on which to moor their life, to tie their life to. To give them stability. They don't have anything. What do we expect? They're looking for all this kind of stuff. And notice, notice what he's saying here. You know, they're weak, they're aimless, they're lost. Because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. I was talking to a friend the other day. And we were talking about how dark it is getting in this world. Uh, you know how things are getting worse and worse and worse, and you look at you look at the inundation of what people want for us to do, and we look at it from our perspective. But let's look at it, and they're saying it's getting worse and darker and darker and darker. And I made a comment. I said the darker it gets, the brighter the gospel is. So if it gets dark and dark and dark, people are going to realize how desperate they are because they're realizing their philosophy, they're going after materialism or materialistic things, going, off, going after all these things, whatever it is, beauty, whatever it is, fame, whatever, it is never going to satisfy. It will never, never satisfy. And you know, what they're no, you know what they're finding out, don't you? They're finding out that that's true. And they're killing themselves. Grade school kids are committing suicide. Do you know that? Grade school kids. Why? They don't see any hope. They buy the line that the world is giving them that there's some kind of relief in killing themselves. Without Jesus Christ, there's no relief. It's just beginning. Because I believe in a place called hell. I believe it. I believe Jesus spoke more on hell than he did heaven. He spoke more on hell than any other subject in the New Testament. He spoke more on hell than any other person in the New Testament. Did you know that? And he died to save us from it. 
He died on that cross. The God-man, God in the flesh, died on that cross to save us from it. And he is declaring to us, these people are weak, they're aimless, they're lost. It's, it's, it's hard to take. I'd like you to keep your finger in Matthew. And would you go to Ezekiel? That's to the left. And go to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. And listen to what, what he, the prophet or the Lord is saying through the prophet. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, this is Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel to do, that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and you clothe yourself with wool. You, you kill those who are fed, but you feed not the flock. The disease have you not strengthened. Neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. Wow. Therefore, you shepherds, verse 7, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food to every beast of the field because they were, there were no shepherds. Neither did my shepherds search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 10, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand because, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall, they, shall the shepherds feed themselves any more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth and that they may not be food for them. Wow. They're weak, they're aimless, they're lost. Keep your finger there. Mark that somehow. We're coming back to this, okay? I'd like you to look at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 10. And if this verse that we are about to read doesn't speak to us, then you're in a coma. Sorry, I mean, I don't mean to be rude. Well, actually, I do. I do mean to be rude. Um, I don't want to be rude, but I'm being rude to me. Look at verse 2. For the idols have spoken. Vanity. And the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way like a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Does that speak today of the world? 
What is the world telling the lie? What is the lie people are telling them? That you can do it yourself. I mean, the, the lie of self, self-containment. The lie of you, you uh, can be the master of your own destiny. The lie of existentialism. That you're at the center of an absurd universe that makes no sense whatsoever. So you need to find meaning and purpose in life, but there's no meaning and purpose in life to find, but you need to find it. But there is none to find, but you need to find it, but there is none to find. That's called a lie, and it's existentialism. It was first taught by Soren Kierkegaard, a Dutch theologian. And also foistered by Karl Barth. And you get, this, you get this, and what's the, what's the lie that people are, I mean, the, the lie that the, the viners have seen the lie, they have spoken vanity, they have told false dreams, they, they comfort in vain. They went their way like a flock and they were troubled because there was no shepherd. There's a famous actress who used to help people channel they, uh, I forget her name. Shirley MacLaine. Used to t- teach people how they could channel their spirit guide. <laughs> and she charged money for this. I mean, and if you think that that's, ooh, that's really weird. Yeah, you'd be right. But it caught on like wildfire. People were paying money, hand over fist, to take her seminar on how to get demon-possessed. That's the reality of it. But you channel this ancient spirit guide and you get lay down and you channel it and that spirit guide comes to you and gives you all this wisdom. They've seen a lie. They have spoken vanity. Scientology, do you ever hear of that? You're going to get clear from all your e, the e-meters, you know. You're going to get clear and you're going to be, oh my word. Mormonism. One of the fastest growing cults in the world. Did you know that? Jehovah's Witnesses. they still knocking on your doors. Still coming around with the Awaken, with the other magazines that they sell and books, etc. Still a money-making organization. Seen a lie. We look at these things and we shine it on. Doesn't affect us. Doesn't affect our bottom line too much. But this is what your neighbor is going through. This is what I went through before I trusted Christ. I was 18. I wasn't a kid. I wasn't six years of age. Five years of age. Praise God for that. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior when you were little, praise God. Everybody that has trusted Christ as their Savior when they were older wished they had done it earlier. You know, Russ, right, my friend Russ Hodder, he's a really good dear friend. And uh, we haven't seen each other for a long time. But do you remember George Nagy? Yeah, George Nagy. I worked in the open air in the New York branch of the open air campaigners for many years and George was worked with me and George was about my father's age he was about 28 years older than me and he was Mr. Steady George looked like 
Archie Bunker. He didn't like that moniker, but people on the street thought he was Archie Bunker. Right? So he was a rough and tough guy, a diesel mechanic. And so you never knew if you were to talk to George in the open air, like in an interview with the sketchboard and all that. And I'd interview George. Sometimes we'd interview each other to get a crowd and this kind of thing, right? And I said, George, what's the greatest thing that ever happened to you? He goes, well, trusting Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. I said, that's fantastic, George. I, and we would talk a little bit more, you know, for a crowd. This is in Manhattan, 14th Street in Manhattan. I'll never forget this. I said, George, I made a mistake to ask this question. I said, do you have any regrets? He goes, I have one regret. I'm going, oh, no, this is bad. <laughs> I'm going, oh, man, George, Lord. I, I started praying, Lord, please help him. Please help me. Help me to overcome this. <laughs> Uh, I said, what was, <clears throat> what was that regret, George? <laughs> he goes, that I didn't, he had trusted Christ at the age of 28. He said, I wish I had done it earlier. And I was 18. I have a friend of mine, his name is John. Uh, and he said, we often talk. We both trusted Christ at the age of 18. And we often thought, what would it have been like if somebody came to our door, knocked on our door, and told us about Jesus Christ, that my mother and my father would have trusted Christ at the age of 30 and raised us, and then we would have trusted Christ as kids. What would that have been like? What would it have been like? You know, my friend John, 18, one of the toughest guys I've ever met in my life, I mean, I'm, and I know SEALs, and I know all these different type of, you know, Force Recon, all these kinds of guys. And my friend John Gorman, who was a blue-chip athlete, one of the toughest guys I've ever met in my life, his father never told him because they were unsaved that he loved him. He said, my dad, I never heard from my father. And we often talk about what would it have been like to have our dad say to us, Chris, John, I love you. It's all because, not, because they didn't have Jesus. Mr. Gorman, John's dad, has since trusted Christ. My father did at the age of 59. He is a different guy. And he started telling me, telling me that he loved me. I mean, it's just, just amazing type of situation. If somebody just would have come to our door, I don't recall ever, ever anybody coming to our door and telling us how we could know for sure we can go to heaven. I wish, wish they had. I wish we were aimless. I had no idea where I was going. I had a friend of mine that died when I was a senior in high school. I had no idea. I was scared. Bob Miller died. I was shocked. He was wrapped himself around the telephone pole. Him and Butch Jones and Bob was DOA at the hospital, dead on arrival. They were both loaded. They were doing alcohol. One of the worst drugs. Well, at least he's not doing drugs, right? Wrong. 
alcohol will kill you. And it did him. And I was scared. Scared out of my mind about, about dying. And I was weak. I was aimless. You know, I want to share a verse with you that really sums up my life as a, before I trusted Christ. And... Um, I hope I find it. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also, talking about Jesus himself, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death. That is the devil. And here's the verse that defines me before I trusted Christ. And deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Weak, aimless, lost, subject to bondage, not knowing where to go. When it comes down to it, when you clear the veneer of a person and the frontalness of it, when you talk to them and you get at the real issues of their life, they are terrified. They will not now tell you that. And if you have somebody tell you that, you're making headway in terms of telling them about Jesus Christ. But that's the condition. And then we see the compassion in verse 36 of Matthew 9. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. He was moved with compassion on them. You know, when, when somebody says that they love somebody, love always moves to action, doesn't it? Or it should. Love moves, moves to action. In Ezekiel 34, remember we were going to go back there? Ezekiel 34, verse 11 says, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I even I will both search my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeking out his flock in the day, that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will deliver them out of all the places where they had been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Verse 16, I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and bind up will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick and I will destroy the fat and the strong and I will feed them with justice. And he looks at this in the compassion and he was moved with compassion on them. He looked at them. He was moved with compassion. He wasn't thinking of himself. He's the Savior of the world. And he looked at them and he was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were weak. They were aimless. They were lost. Our dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, somebody prayed for you. Somebody cared for you. Somebody went the extra mile and got nervous and their hands clammy, cotton in their mouth, and they didn't know what to say. But somebody took the risk wondering if they're going to get rejected by you, but said it anyway, and went after you. 
When I was a kid, I, I think I've told this story before. I have. I don't know where. But when I was a kid on my block, you know, we had, you know, we're baby boomers, right? And we had a lot of kids on our block. And we played baseball. We played, you know, all that kind of stuff as kids. We didn't have video games. We, we had to go play baseball. We had to go, to, you know, play football. We got in fights. You know, we got all this kind of stuff, right? We did all this kind of stuff. So, so Gary and Gail Musser, Gary was my age, and Gail was, I think, a year younger than me. But Gail walked like this. And the reason why she walked like this is because she had braces on her legs. She had some kind of a disease. We didn't know what it was. We weren't doctors at the time, and we had some, they had some kind of, she had some kind of disease that she had to wear braces. And the, the word was that if she were to fall down, she would have to wear those braces another six months. <laughs> so what did I do? I pushed her down intentionally twice. She wore those braces Another full year because of this moron. And then time goes on. Now I'm in high school, playing basketball, really self-centered and all this kind of stuff. I mean, really self-centered. And um, Gail's right, you know, a year behind me. I'd see her. You know, she wasn't mean to me or anything like that. It wasn't like she was bitter towards me. And hi, Gail. Hi, Chris. And we just, you know, went on our way. I, I saw Gary. Hi, Gary. Hi, Chris. That kind of thing. So I'm, I graduated barely from high school. And uh, now I'm in college. And, and during college, my freshman year, a guy, John Gorman, came and told me about Jesus Christ. And then... My friend Dave Weibel, I've shared that with you already. Dave Weibel told me about Jesus Christ. And, and uh, I listened to Dave because he was a Methodist. My friend John was a Catholic. I thought we had a corner on God, us Catholics. Now, how can a Methodist tell me about Jesus Christ? You've got to be crazy, you know? And I, so I listened to him. He told me I could know for sure I could go to heaven when I died. If I simply recognized that I was a sinner and I couldn't save myself, I knew I was a sinner, but I did not know I could not save myself. I thought I could save myself by doing good works, balancing it out. I've never been drunk. I've never been arrested. I've never uh, spent a night in jail, anything like that. So I thought I was Mr. Goody two basketball shoes. And so... Dave told me how I could know for sure, and I trusted Christ. And so that summer, that was in March, that summer, at the beginning, the beginning of the summer, we, five of us met in this upper room at this Methodist church that was open all night. And they had this up balcony, and they called it the upper room, and we met. By the end of the summer, there was 105 kids. Guys were coming home from college. They were dropping like flies. They were getting saved during, I guess, what they called the Jesus movement. And people were getting saved like crazy, and we were meeting and praying and singing, and it was just, and it was not something formal. It was just we got together and did that, right? People were getting saved. So I, 
you have to come down the stairs. And I come bounding down the stairs. I had to go to the restroom or something. I don't know. I come running down the stairs and you know, born again. I'm, you know, just really thrilled. And we're, you know, things are happening. And I come running down and guess who's standing there? Gail. She looks at me and she said, Chris? I said, hi, Gail. She goes, Chris Schroeder? And I, how you doing? She goes, what are you doing here? I said, I got saved, Gail. Praise God, huh? She looked at me and she said, I prayed six years for you to come to Christ. Six years after what I did to her, after all those things, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, after me, she wore those braids, she prayed for my soul that I would come to Christ. Are we like that? Do we do that? The compassion always leads, always leads us to action. I want his compassion in my life. D.L. Moody one time prayed for that kind of compassion. He asked God, give me your compassion, give me your compassion. And finally, he had so much of the compassion. He was kneeling and he was praying and he asked God that, to stay his hand because he felt like he would die if he had any more. Stay your hand, Lord. I want this. I want this. My dear brothers and sisters, when we look at this and we look at the, look at the motivation and then in verse 37, we look at the, man, uh, the matter of it. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You know, people say to me today, and it's really rather disgusting because of, of this passage. They say, well, you know, nobody really wants to hear the gospel anymore. What, are you kidding me? When it, Russ, you know, when, when Russes, when you guys go into the open air, you go to them. G-O-S-P-E-L. We need to put the go back into the gospel. We have to go to them. They're not coming to us, generally speaking. Two times in 40-some years of preaching in the open air and talking to people about Christ, and it's been a, it's 46 years of doing that. Um, and I, you know, preaching on the street, foaming lip league, leather lung league, all that kind of stuff. Two times in 46 years of telling people about Christ on a, on a full-time basis, on a full-time posture, uh, because our whole life is, should be full-time. Two times did people ever come up to me and ask me how to get to heaven. Two times, and I remember them. It was at the Salt Company one time. These girls came in and said, are you Christians? And we said, yes, we are. How do I get to heaven? That was the first time. Next time was in Times Square. Jack Kreidler was with us. And we were, he had just finished preaching. And this girl came up to me in Times Square. It looks like daytime at night because of the lights, right? 
came up to me and said, I, are you a Christian? Yes, we are. We're Christians. And he said, can you tell me how to trust Christ? Oh, actually, I'm going to say a third time. Because when I'm in Chicago preaching on the street right in front of the Man Water Tower place and, and, there, and the cops wanted to move us. So I got a security guard from the water tower place and I got a cop, you know, like right here, a Chicago cop. A cabbie pulls up. He pulled, lets us fare out. He hears what we're saying because I kept going. <laughs> Not a really smart move, but I just did it. I kept preaching even with the cop ready to arrest. And I just kept preaching and this guy gets out. The cabbie gets out. He was a foreign guy. Why am I surprised? He's a cab driver. He comes out and he starts yelling at me. How do I get rid of sin? How do I get rid of sin? Tell me, how do I get rid of sin? And I, I just happened to have a piece of literature on me. And right in, the middle, right in the middle of all this, cops wanting to move me, preaching, having this get, this will tell you, thank you, gets in his, shuts both doors, gets in his, boom, gone. How do I get rid of sin? We have to go to them. We have to go to them. They're not coming to us. They're not going to come to us. We have to go to them. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. I want to ask you a question. Why so few laborers? Why so few laborers? Why aren't you one of those laborers? We have theological reasons. You know, we have medical reasons. We have all this kind of stuff. I, I never forgot the story of George William, of William Booth who founded the Salvation Army. His wife had just passed away with cancer. And uh, he is now going blind. I don't know what his malady was, macular degeneration. I don't know. He was going blind. And so they asked the guy, the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, General William Booth, they asked him, he said, he said General Booth, you're going blind. How are you going to serve God? He said, I serve God. I serve God with my eyesight. Now I'm going to serve God in my blindness. That, to me, is a focused person. He's not going to quit. He's just not going to quit. What's our excuse? What is your excuse not to tell your friends, your neighbors? I mean, are we could really call them friends? If they're really our friends, wouldn't we want to share the best news possible? But there's a lot of, lot of uh, fear in this. There's a lot of fear that goes with this. No questions about it. Will they reject me? Will I say it wrong? Right? Isn't that correct? Will I say it wrong? Will I not uh, be you know, cool enough for them? How do I hook them to wanting to come? Oh, let's get them to come to the chapel and we'll let somebody else talk to them. Okay, I understand that. I understand that if you have a question, somebody but study to show yourself approved unto God. Answer their question. I can understand that. Do that, right? But tell them. Tell them about this. They're weak. They're, 
The harvest truly is plenteous. They're weak. They're scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Don't you care? Seriously, don't you care? Don't I care? If we believe that book, the Lord, what the Lord Jesus said about hell, and what the Lord Jesus said about heaven, and what the Lord Jesus said about eternity, don't we care? Isn't that the biggest issues on the planet? For each individual human being, isn't that the biggest issue? It's not whether America is made great again or not made great again. The real issue is not the balance of power with ICBMs. The, you, know who, you know who's keeping this world from going to hell in a handbasket? You want to know what it is? It's the church. The Holy Spirit within the church. And when the rapture takes place, boom, gone, all of a sudden, you're going to see it break loose. It's you in the body of Christ that is the, the uh, barometer for this world in terms of morals and in terms of why evil hasn't taken over. Hot heart. Will you pray with me this morning? Will you please pray with me this morning? that we could see people the way Jesus sees them. And we can see their plight, their situation, their ugly situation, and never get over it. Never get over it. Look at them the way Jesus looks at them, and never get over it. Would you pray that? Isn't this the bottom line, folks? Isn't this what it is? And if you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, you must or you will perish. I believe in divine retribution because Jesus believed it and He died on the cross to save us from it. And I believe in hell. That Think about this just for a moment. If you read Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15, you will find out that they will burn forever and ever in the lake of fire. They will never have a reprieve. They will never be exu- you know, out of it. They will never be annihilated, as some like John R.W. Stott wants us to believe. Or Clark Pinnock wants us to believe. That's not going to happen. They will burn forever and ever. Not only the psychological issues that take place while they're there and they wish they had done it and they wish they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they will experience physical pain. They will, and this is forever. It's not a game. This is not a game. God demands it of us to tell people about Christ because they're lost, they're weak, they're aimless, and they don't have Jesus. And without Him, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And there is no reprieve from that. And if what I'm saying right now bothers you, if it bothers you, 
God, why? And if it doesn't bother you, and you're placid about this whole thing, ask yourself, why? Because he had one son. The father had one son, and he sent him to die for you. And for that guy, for that homosexual, for that guy hooked on fentanyl, for anybody. He died, he died for me, he died for you. We have an obligation. I want to see people, and you have an obligation. You do too, Zoe. You do. To my neighbors, to my schoolmates, to my anybody that's breathing. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Russ, I want to talk to you just for a moment. Can I? When I went to New York from Chicago as a student at Moody Bible Institute, I, we did a lot of open air in Chicago. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, Russ, but when I went out there and, and uh, my, between my junior and senior year and I was praying about whether I should go to New York and preach the gospel, I'll never forget. I saw on an advertisement, I saw on an advertisement on a garbage can and I'm gonna believe this. And it said this, if not you, who? If not here, where? And if not now, when? If not you, who? If not here, where? And if not now, when? Father, we ask you that you would help us to help us to tell people about you. Help us. Please help us to care for the lost and dying. Help us never get over it. Help us always to use whatever we have for your glory. Father, please help us. And help us to help them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.